Okay, how's it going, everybody? Welcome to JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, where we try to keep you up to date with what's going on in Israel. And boy, now it's time to get caught up to date. Uh, you'll notice that we're dropping this episode early in the week because of the events of the weekend. We really wanted to get this podcast out quickly, which means that our thoughts aren't as fully baked as they'll be in a week, but at least our initial reactions are here. Uh, I'm here as always. I, I always forget to say my own name. I'm exactly. Michael Hunterberg, and I am here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going nice and chilly. It is. It's a chilly, drizzly day here. Perfect for the mood set by uh, international politics. And we have with us this week, Benji Davis. How's it going, Benji? I'm like a reoccurring guest, so maybe I can get like some sort of title. I don't think you're a guest. I think you're a... Uh... Yeah, you're not a guest. I mean, I'm not a host. You're an analyst. Analyst. Yeah. Okay, an analyst, but we also need J-U a nickname. J.U. in-house analyst. Thank no, you we need much. a nickname because Zev, if Zev is uh, Zen Master of Israel Articulation, what's Benji? <laughs> He is such a voice, Zen master. But voice, voice of the future. The voice of reason. That, uh, I think uh, voice of reason, that's a little bit too, uh, you know. I say, I say uh, voice, visionary of the future. Vo- future well, we'll play with it. A voice of vision. A voice of vision. Voice of vision. Might be right, a new metaphor, it. but uh, what can you do? Uh, okay. So, we're obviously, first of all, you can tell by the audio that we're doing this via Skype. Uh, I am drinking coffee because it is the teacher's lounge, and so the fact that the other two guys aren't, I can only take as a complete disrespect to this entire endeavor. Shame on both. Finished my tea. All right, all right. Benji's at least... Uh, Benji's I, would love to, I would love to have a cup of coffee, but since we're not in a coffee place, I can't order it, and we started already, so... Wow, <laughs> fair enough. Okay, so let's get to it. Uh, obviously, no more dilly-dallying. Yeah, no, none of this uh, chit-chat and friendliness. Uh, we're obviously dealing with the U- United States abstaining from the UN Security Council resolution condemning the se- Jewish settlements in Yehudan Shamron, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. Now, let's just, before we get into the analysis, explain what all of this means. And I'm going to, let's do this as question and answer. What is the difference, um, and, and, and I'm asking to have this explained, what is the difference between when the, the UN General Assembly is when all the nations of the world get together and vote? And yet that is seen as less of a big deal than when just the 11 nations of the Security Council make a vote? Why is that? I would think that the General Assembly, when all the nations get together for a big vote, that would be a bigger deal. But everyone's freaking out because... This is a Security Council resolution. What is the Security Council, and why do its resolutions disturb people more? So a lot so they're of kind of they're binding. First of all, so we so have to step back, right? I think that before we jump into the binding, not because this actually is not a binding resolution of the Security Council. It's a uh, um, this one in particular. It depends what well, different ones. Like they can do binding ones, but this one is not. First of all, I think it's fifteen members, oh, five permanent. Five permanent and then ten, roving. Um, ten uh, rotating ones, which Israel is never able to be on because we don't Although belong. They're advocating to try and get on it now. Correct, but because we don't belong to a region. Basically, what happens is but, when the UN, what is UN the security was set council? up. When the UN was set up, it was set up 
post, you know, really towards the end of World War II. In World War II, they already called themselves the United Nations. And then they took that, meaning the United Nations, those were the allies um, fighting against the Axis. And when they won the World War II, they replaced the League of Nations, which preceded World War II, which was found after World War I, with this new organization called the United Nations to keep world peace, let's say, or negotiate world issues. Um, and so the main uh, body that determined uh, the, the, the power essence was the Security Council, which was made up of the five major allies, United States, Britain, France, China, um, and one more. I just space for a second. United States, Britain, France, China. Soviet Union. And Soviet Union, thank you, for, uh, which is now today Russia. So those five allies set up the Security Council, and the way they set up the United Nations was that the only body in the United Nations that could back its resolutions, meaning binding, with sanctions or actually military activity, was the Security Council. Then all these other nations in the world could join, and they were the gen became the General Assembly. And when they make resolutions in the General Assembly, they are not binding, meaning they they are not backed up by sanctions and potential military action. The only time that that happens is if they want to do something, then they take it to the Security Council. But the Security Council also can do non-binding resolutions, which this resolution is actually a non-binding resolution. Okay? Wait, can you explain how do they decide when to do a non-binding and a binding resolution? It's just their, their decision. They decide that this is going to be something. Like when they did the, the whole thing about in 1990, when Iraq, or, or 1991, 1990, when Iraq went into, Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait, and they invaded that thing. So it went to the Security Council. They made a binding resolution that they have to get out of there. And if they don't, there will be, there will be you know, sanctions, and then eventually there was military war against it. I mean, instance. to put it in cynical terms, they're literally saying, this is a statement that we want you to take seriously, or this is a statement that we don't want you to take seriously, that we're just stating for diplomatic purposes, but we're right. not we're not advocating that it take effect in the real world. So, in so fact, you're saying that wait, but if this was a legally binding um, resolution, then the uh, United States would have abstained, and maybe they would have vetoed it. Well, the United States did put apparently considerable diplomatic effort into toning down the statement and making sure it's not well it's it it, it turns out that as a as a statement of okay, so now let's deal with the statement itself let's do that as a step back also what does the statement actually say can you sum it up alan the statements say that um building in areas over the green line which is again the was the border between israel and jordan because we're just talking about the west bank really right now jordan um, in 1967, Israel captured those territories in 1967. Any building over that line, including Jerusalem, including including the West Bank, Judea Samaria, Judea Samaria is is illegal, and they strongly also um, uh, condemn terrorism. But generally, not mentioning anybody and, oh, and in particular, incite, and incitement to terrorism. I will note that, and I like to note this on this. It's a prop. It's a detail, but it does not say Palestinian terrorism. Right. It just says terrorism, which means that that can be applied to also to Israel or, or to Jews. So, uh, and it's also equating building. I believe that the that that the resolution is equating building in the West Bank with terrorism. 
Well, also if you're if really? you're if you're if you're serious. Well, if you're serious <laughs> about if you're really serious about peace between Israelis and Palestinians, to once again single out the Israelis and not mention the Palestinians and their behavior specifically, and then just have this vague thing about terror. It's hard to say that that's really going to seriously advance peace, and it's anything more than a smack at Israel. Especially... And I think any of the spin that people are trying to put on it, that, uh, oh, but it's good also Israel because terrorism is not, it's spin. This is clearly, this is clearly a, a critique and a smack, as Mike said, at Israel. Now, for UN Security Council resolutions, this is actually a pretty... This, Ironically, this is like an Israel-friendly smack at Israel compared to other things they've done in the past, which have been much more harsh against Israel and didn't even bother mentioning terrorism or incitement. So for the Security Council, historically, this is seen as a pretty fair-minded, even though objectively it's impossible to defend it as such. I think the point has to be made, and Rafael Oren made this point in Times of Israel, and uh, you know I'm, I'm glad that he made it because I wasn't seeing anybody else making it so much, especially you know on the Israeli Jewish side, which is forget you know yes Israel America abstained, but 14 countries who have continually blasted Israel over building over the Green Line is nothing new, right? And the fact that and that America abstained isn't all that new either. America has continually made the case that they believe that building over the Green Line is very, very problematic, if not illegal and illegitimate, right? So the truth is, we're, we're in Israel, we're celebrating this spring, 50 years since the, the, um, the uh, Jerusalem has been liberated and, and, and what, whatever else you do and wherever you are, think. But the truth is, in those 50 years, we have not at all convinced the world that we have rights to this territory. We have Not in the slightest. Not but I do want to add, um, I saw Anat Wilf. Um, she wrote that this is the closest thing that in any international law that recognizes the legal sovereignty of Israel in the uh, 1949 Armistice Agreement line borders. And it maybe provides the legal justification um, for the world to recognize West Jerusalem as Israel's capital and then for the U.S. to move its embassy there. Well, that's, you know, you can do, there's, also, there's always opportunities for diplomatic judo, where you take the positive out of it and, you know, try to move past the negative in it. There's all sorts of ways to maneuver that. What I want to do is two things. I want to look at this first from the American perspective, and then I want to look at it from the Israeli perspective. Now, to look at it from the American perspective, obviously we are, as Israelis, concerned, and as Jews, concerned with what it means for Israel. And we look at it through that lens. And, you know, my news feed, which is exploding with vitriol, I would, I would prefer a little light to the heat. As usual, let, let's take a step back. Obviously, this is a stick in the eye of Israel from the United States of America. This isn't super surprising, considering diplomatically how well the United States and Israel have been getting along the last few years. What I want to know is... Forget, forget Jews, forget Israel. From the perspective of the U.S. administration, which, which, which needs to be allied with Israel for its own interests, why did they do this? Forget, forget Jews, forget pro-Israel, forget anything. Just, if, if America needs to stick up for Israel for its own selfish interests, and it does, and America, as you're saying, Alan, has abstained from U.N. resolutions in the past where it saw fit, uh, 
you know, one administration after the other. Why is this one? Why did they do that here? They they haven't done it. This is the first time the Obama administration had, administration has not used its veto power to stop an Israel, anti-Israel resolution in the Security Council. Why now? Why this one? What is this about? I think you have to reframe it. It's not America. It's the Obama administration. Fair enough. I mean, if you just look at, A, the incoming administration, number one, and B, the bipartisan criticism of it from Congress and talks of defunding parts of the UN as a result of this, it is... It's the Obama administration, so we have to understand or really look at it. Why the hell are they doing it? It's in their interest, especially since Kerry's failed stocks from 2013 and 2014. They've shown no interest in any sort of um, push the uh, Serena between the Israelis and the Palestinians. So So I would also, I would have to twilight of their administration with what is it, 25 days left? Oh, we're going to. And according to Israelis, push through this initiative in the Security Council to criticize Israel's settlement enterprise. Well, once you put, so what, is, once you put it into that context, I mean, there's a few reasons. My first is it's a big. Uh, um, I'm trying to use a nice kosher word. Middle finger. At Bibi. yes, put up the middle finger or two middle fingers to Bibi. Um, either a for eight years of him being. You know, not so nice with what the Obama administration wanted to do, or B for the Iraq for the the speech in Congress that they're still bitter about it and they wanted to get back at him, uh, or C uh, they are firm believers in their ideology that the settlements are the main obstacle to peace and Israel um, is really the only thing that can get this moving because they don't see the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians as a geopolitical territorial issue. They see it as a civil rights issue. I really believe that the Obama administration sees the 1960s in America in the West Bank today, that the Palestinian issue is a social justice issue, and the way to get it, uh, the way to get um, a, uh, movement pro- the, pro- the situation to be redeemed for the Palestinians in movement is to pressure the Goliath, is to pressure the big dog, is to pressure the, so, the Israel that can actually make the law or make D. changes. That it's a ah. smack at the incoming Trump administration, also. I, I think it's more than a smack, Mike. Actually, I think it's because I think that is the m- main motivating reason. Even though you're right, maybe it's revenge, maybe it's not. They have their personal. We, we've actually seen throughout the Obama administration, as much as they personally dislike each other, and that's clear. No matter what they say in public, they personally dislike each other. They usually have been really been able to keep that out of, out of the major di- diplomatic issues like the. You know the the thirty eight billion dollars contract that we signed for you know support and those kinds of things. So maybe that may be part of it, but I think the really three point eight billion a year. Yeah, thirty eight billion a year, ten years. Yeah. So I, I think that the real major thing, and it's not even only a smack at the incoming. I think they're trying to push. They're trying to push the the Trump into the corner on this issue because. I, it came, the three things it came off of. Three things it came off of. One was the the the, the sta- new statements about moving the embassy to Jerusalem, which would be a clear. Now again, we know presidents say or not, but usually presidents don't say it after they've been elected. They only say it before. And also, so you can listen to our last podcast where we discussed that issue. Right. Two. The um, the incoming uh, ambassador to Israel is cl- not only clearly a pro settlement person. He's someone who personally 
uh, sits on the board of, of a major settlement, Beit El, in the, in the Binyamin region. And number three, and number, th- can't hear you, number three, and number three, um, and number three is the Amona. The issues are going with Amona and Israel's beginning to make more facts on the ground legally um, that has come out of the Amona thing, trying to pass laws that would... Well, since uh, I seem to feel the need to add a fourth thing, you also have the fact that the Trump administration got Egypt to withdraw yeah. the, uh, the resolution right. before, That's huge. Trump, before Trump is in the office. Yeah. And so he called he had a direct conversation with Sisi, the president for life of, of Egypt, and had him withdraw the resolution. And so other countries reinstated the resolution. But but that that's an enormous interference with the you know, the forget current. the one China policy. America also has a one president policy. So Right. So, but I think it also right. But that, but I think it's really trying to like it's because his ideology. I really do believe they believe in the ideology that Benji was saying that the settlements are the major obstacle, and we need to remove that. And if Israel will only make peace, there'll be peace. This and that. But I think he sees that the Trump, the Trump administration is going to throw that out the window, and he wants to try and bind it in as much as possible in in the, in the best way that he possibly can, and. You know, that's a, that's a, you know, what else does Obama have left in his, in his arsenal along with the Palestinians, really? Well, I don't know. But this is, but I really think who's lost, who gets lost think, and who suffers way, from this resolution and Obama, it shows so, I think it's so selfish. I think at the end of the day, this is going to hurt the Palestinians more than anyone else. Probably. Well, I, I think Palestinians more than anyone else. I'm going to make a conjecture, and you can tell me, well, you, nobody would ever know. I don't think this would have passed if, with, if uh, Clinton would have won the, pres- would have won the presidency. Because I think he's trying to bind in uh, 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 any kind of future foreign policy stuff that he can. I also don't think it would have passed if this was a different administration in Israel that hadn't recently claimed itself to be the number one, Benjamin Netanyahu, in trying to convince the people of Amona to trust him, said there's never been a bigger supporter of the settlement movement. In other words, it's a, it's a perfect storm of factors. Um, and and I would argue that if, you, if you're saying it's selfish, I, I think it, I, I, would, I would not call it selfish of the Obama administration. I would call it, I don't know, peevish or immature in that it's going to take a foreign policy legacy, which is already in the toilet. And in particular, a Middle Eastern foreign policy legacy, yeah. which is pure garbage. And, and it, it shows look- them to be so obtuse. Yeah. It's yeah, ridiculous. Exactly. Yeah, 100 miles away from where we're sitting, half a million people have been killed over the last few years. And a city, one of the greatest cities in human civilization, has completely been massacred and destroyed. So and they did I, nothing. I, I, think, uh, uh, I think they probably I don't know if I it, but that's not really... Yeah. I don't know if I call it a mature. I just show it's just one more failure in their understanding of how the Middle East works, foreign policy works, and how to and how to get things done here. As as many have said, Obama will be judged on his domestic policy much more than his foreign policy because no, I think he he'll be judged by not, both. But the only positive, I'm, yeah, yeah you know, the only and, positive thing to judge right. him for is domestic. The, exactly. the foreign policy but, is abject failure. The whole point of the UN is to secure the peace and to prevent conflict and war. It did not do that with regards to Syria. It was not meant to criticize one country over and over again, but especially a disputed territory, which is the conflict is geopolitical and should be 
decided upon through negotiations, which is still supposed to be the policy of the UN in the first place. Secure the peace. Keep the peace. They're not doing it. Well, they so, can't do yeah, it. It's so, not designed to do it. But that's a conversation for a different day. No, what I'll alternatives do we have to the United Nations? Which no, obviously no, I think you're missing. I think you're missing a little bit of the point when we say that because the the entire world, basically, at least the governments, they don't see the negotiations over the settlements, over the over over the green line. That is not a negotiation. That is Israel is illegally. Illegally building, occupying those areas. Well, that's what you're talking about. It's not that they, it's not that yeah. to get out of the to get out of the West Bank. They it's not a negotiation. No, no. For, for them, hold on. For the Israeli army to withdraw from the West Bank has to be done under negotiation, according to the world. Mm-hmm. For Jews to, to to Jews to stop building homes in the West Bank, they're saying has to be done immediately and should not depend on negotiations. Or even to re- or even to remove Jews from the West Bank, like we did in Gaza. It's not really negotiations. I think they, that they would argue. That's what they're that's saying. That's why we didn't have um, like when they're saying in Israel that the world's going to look at us so much better because we left Gaza. Lasted maybe a day. And if and if we go and if we go on to the the failure of the Netanyahu government uh, in terms at least vis a vis the the American uh, diplomacy. Uh, we have to put on the fa- general failure of Israel. I said it before, the general failure of our side to be able to convince the world of our narrative that Yehuda Shomron, Jerusalem, is inherent to... Well, let's take a look at it from that perspective for a moment. And we're going to have to continue to do episodes. We've had a request to do another episode about Jews living in the West Bank and the legality. That's for a future podcast episode. But for now, let's we're shifting to the question of, is this... And I'm, I'm, I'm totally loading the question here. But is can this be seen as anything? We, we, we agree that this is a failure on the part of the Obama administration to make meaningful Middle East policy. And it's a failure to uh, treat allies in a way that makes rational sense. But I would, I would ask the question this way in a very loaded way about Israel. Can this be seen as anything but an abject failure of Israeli foreign policy to make meaningful strides and progress in communicating its ideas and policies to the world. Well, I don't remember who wrote, um, was it on Times of Israel? Was it Raphael's piece um, where he talked about that, that BB thought that the settlement issue was kind of put to the wayside and people just kind of don't care about it anymore. Yeah. What we see here is that's just not true. But the many countries in the world are willing, on the one hand, to increase trade, increase security and intelligence cooperation, like the United States and the Obama administration, which clearly has shown that. But on the other hand, still looks at the settlements as illegal and illegitimate and the West Bank issue as a civil rights legal issue and not a political territorial one. Well, BB has... And that, that's what, it's two different paradigms. BB, BB has... thought that that other paradigm with regards to the settlements being illegal, poof, it's gone. He's wrong. So that is a failure. Uh, but what are the ramifications? He's probably, he probably knew it would happen. In, uh, in the, he just had this you know, big, in 60 Minutes, Leslie Stahl um, did a whole series of interviews with him. And he basically kept this narrative going, right? Continued this narrative going, which is, you know, you're seeing a huge pivot in the world. Israel's place is much better. Nobody cares about the settlements. And... Um, and you know, look at Africa now. We they lo- Africa loves us, and these love us, and and uh, uh, and 
I mean, it, it well, seems like... It's a mission like... accomplished narrative. Mission accomplished. Israel has changed it. No longer is the world against us. No longer does the world disagree with us. He has been saying this publicly to the media. He has testified in front of the Knesset that Israel no longer has a foreign policy problem, a diplomacy problem. When he was called to account at the Knesset for, A, not having a foreign minister. In other words, we have nobody running our foreign ministry. Oh, except for Bibi. Bibi has the time to also do. And also for the fact that the foreign ministry's budget is totally under what it should be. And of the totally under-budgeted foreign ministry that we have, the money's being spent entirely poorly. And only a small fraction of it actually goes to diplomatic work. To which, Well, it's because you have the strategic affairs ministry. You have the diaspora ministry. It's split up between people in the Likud party. And everybody's... It's a, yeah, it's a mess. Well, that not having a foreign minister and to claim that Israel doesn't have problems in, in its foreign policy, that Israel doesn't have diplomatic difficulty, why, why does he do that? I mean, obviously, you can say that he's convinced himself of this narrative that the settlements don't matter, but in a world of BDS activism and European Union, uh, uh, you know, talking about boycotting West Bank goods, he's a very smart fellow. What what are his what, what what dance is he dancing, that he's trying to convince people that this narrative is reality when we're all looking at the world and seeing it's not? Well, I would boldly try and say that he's taking a page out of the Trump playbook, like his like his newly uh, pivot in, in media relations, going straight to Facebook away from traditional media, other than, of course, foreign media, like 60 Minutes, but in terms of homegrown media, and just say it. Keep saying your your narrative. It doesn't matter if there's truth in it or not, because that's what people are, are going to believe. And then you see why, it, and, it, and it feeds into exactly what he's doing now, his full frontal assault on, the, on this whole diplomatic thing, um, telling the Ukraine not to come, uh, you know, the, the, who was it, the president or prime minister of the Ukraine was supposed to come, canceling that, uh, bringing in all these ambassadors for a, for a shakedown or rundown, whatever you call dress it. Dress down. English. Dress down, thank you. Dress Nizifa. down. Nizifa in Hebrew. That's his reading in Hebrew, right? For the dress down. The American ambassador, you know, Dan Shapiro, like, why, why all this? Because he is creating an image. Just the same exact thing is the reason why I think he went to Congress. He knew he lost Iran. He knew he wasn't going to change it, but it was for politics at home. I'm the tough guy. I'm the fighter. I'm strong. Nobody else is willing to stand up to these people. Oh, I lost the battle. I'll show that actually I didn't lose the battle because I'm strong and tough. They're just against us. I want to say, I just, it's annoying. Enough. Eight years of campaigning while you're actually leading. I think Bibi's a fantastic politician, and I think he's also a great leader, and many things he's been a great prime minister, and other things he's been failures. But I just, it makes me so frustrated with the Israeli political system that issues of foreign policy at the end of the day are dealt with with a lens towards or a pivot towards domestic, and he's trying to be the tough guy. We're never going to solve the issues here when the leaders are always feeling like they have an instable place leading their coalitions. So you're saying this dance, the governing system has to change. So you guys are describing the dance, if I'm understanding you both correctly, is that domestically he has to appear the tough guy. He seems very strong on settlements for foreign consumption. So what, why does he always say he's for a two-state solution? That's just to be in English. I. Can you clarify that? Because those are two words. It, technically, it was a sentence, but I don't know what you're talking in about. In English. 
How many times does BB give a speech in Hebrew saying, I believe in two states for two peoples? He'll say it in English, and then if he'll give it, and then it could be translated into the Israeli media. And his constituents know he's saying that in English for the Americans or for the international community. On the record, talking to reporters, he'll say things like, See, I told you there wouldn't be a two state solution. It'll never work. He says that. Or the Arabs are going to vote in droves. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 100%. 100%. It's all politics. So the that's, internal... why people, that's why no one believes Bibi. Okay, so now I'm going to push back a little bit on, my, on, on this ranting on Bibi, which I don't necessarily disagree with. But I just want to point <laughs> out... No, I, I, just, I just want to point out, it's also a complicated world we live in. So I think the Russian, right. the Russian situation is so fascinating. Right? Because mm. there's been this big talk, okay, we're much closer with Russia now. Bibi's constantly meeting with Putin, and then Russia goes and votes for it. It's not even an abstention. They voted for this. So what's really happening? So first of all, we have to give them kudos. Russia has been active now in Syria for how long? Two years? Yeah. A year, year and a half, you know? Since, and since, not, since Crimea. Since Crimea. And that's a big deal. I mean, again, Syria is not far from us. We could all get in a car and be in Damascus in five hours from here, you know, including border crossings if, if we had an open border, right? Um, Syria is very close to us. There's been a serious war. And Bibi has managed to negotiate that over the last five years, the civil war, and not got, gotten us into any major conflagrations because of that, especially with a, if not a world superpower, certainly a strong nation such as Russia. So on that side, he seems to have done a good job. And even. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're complimenting for the fact that he hasn't started a war with Russia in Syria? Not that he has. Not that he hasn't started a war in Russia. No, that, that there haven't been any mess-ups. Like there's been mess-ups. We it's the a, Russians. In whose interest is it to start a war with Israel on the other side? No, nobody's no interested. One. So that's nobody. No, 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 no. Michael, you're jumping too far to war. Don't jump to war. There could have been. Uh, we could have shot down. What Russian are you complimenting the man for? I'm complimenting the man for being able to negotiate the fact that when we bomb in Syria. We don't shoot down any Russian planes, and when they bomb, then when we come in, they don't shoot us down and things like that. That good that's coordination the, between the armed forces. Yeah, that's a that's a big thing. Okay. Yeah, that's a big thing. The fact managing that, the complexities of a very complicated geopolitical situation in Syria, where on the one hand Russia <laughs> is teaming up with our number one enemy, but on the same time we're teaming up with Russia to make sure we don't get in each other's business. Well, not to yeah, not to be Obama. That's what Alan's to, saying. Uh, I agree, Romney, with Alan. But I don't know. But I don't know that we are. I don't know that Assad is our number one enemy. A and B. No, Iran is. Iran. Well, Iran, Iran definitely is. And, and Iran is, is giving Iran and Russia are BFF in Syria right now. Right. And they're giving and they're giving weapons to Hezbollah, and occasionally we attack Hezbollah, right? Who's, who's for having those weapons? Right. Is essentially an ally with Russia. That's the whole so, Middle East. You have you have America working exactly. with Iran exactly. in Iraq and working against them in Yemen. But that that's what the entire Middle East is. Exactly. And we're sitting in the middle of that and we are basically very comfortable in our living rooms and I think you have to give the man credit for that. Just just like you have to give the man credit for that in 2008 after the the, the worldwide recession, uh, Israel didn't feel it so badly. That I would you know, give him when he was finance minister. Yeah, for this, yeah. his career in the nineties. No, I'm saying you have to recognize. Again, I'm just saying you have to recognize he's he is in a difficult he is in a difficult spot in terms of his. Hold on a second. You know. Hold on a second. In talking about Obama's foreign policy failure, we're not talking about his domestic policy, right? No. 
So without talking about the economy in 2008 in Israel and the work Bibi did as finance minister, which seems to have served us in the long term in good stead, I'm simply talking about, let's keep the subject too, and not, not, because I, not because I want to bash the fact that Sahal manages to coordinate our northern border security well. You want to say that that credit no, for that goes, maybe that's fine. He's prime minister. It's, he can it's take that the he's made these inroads with Putin. I think it's because he's made these inroads with Putin very clearly. That, he's, that he put a, you know, a lot of his diplomacy has been behind closed doors, which a diplomacy should be. That's what I'm saying. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily a huge feather in the cap of the leader of a democracy that you're working much, much better with Putin than you are with the United States of America. As much credit as the United States of America gets for the sour relationship between the United, this administration and this Israeli administration, I would argue that the Israeli administration has to take its responsibility for the complete souring of this relationship as well. And the ability to turn to Vladimir Putin and say, see, Obama, we don't need you so much anymore because there's a new superpower in the region and we'll ease their way into it and work with them and, and make you a player in the Middle East so that Putin gets geopolitical advantage and that works out for Israel. You're saying that's a credit to Netanyahu. I'm saying that 67... I'm glass half emptying that compliment, man. I, I, I'm saying the 67 and 73 are because we stayed fully in the American and Western sphere while Russia was making its inroads in the Arab world. Relevance? Because it, America has pulled itself out of the Middle East, right? More or less as a as a major player, right? And so you have to you have to deal with the people who are the major players here, and Russia is the major player, and he's doing. You can't that. ignore him. You, you can't, can't ignore him. I'm not saying ignore him. I'm you questioning. Say, you seem to be actually. You seem to be saying Putin's a dictator, so we should really be. You know. Go ahead, finish, because I made no such statement. So I'm curious. So we what, should. What, so we, we should. We be, should what? We should what? What am I saying? So I haven't said anything. I'm feeling a little tension between you we guys. Should not We're arguing. <laughs> <laughs> I think you deal with Stalin differently than you deal with Churchill or Roosevelt. <laughs> so that's that. that that's is, a big, yeah, and the fact is, if you have to overthrow Hitler, you may have to work with Stalin. But Stalin is not Churchill and Roosevelt. And, that close, and the Churchill-Roosevelt relationship is much more important and much more, uh, and it's their obligation to make sure that so, it works well personally. And Churchill and Roosevelt were, Churchill and Roosevelt were very, very helpful for the Jews in Europe. I'm not, again, no, obviously I'm they were the worst. Hey, not the point. Not the worst. I'm just saying that everybody has to keep their everybody has to keep their interests in and their interests. But that is my point. And Churchill and Roosevelt understood that as the two democratic powers, their interests lay not only in working to defeat Hitler with Stalin, but in making sure that their relationship was a different relationship and they had a communication that that was. And, and I'm saying that. And, and meanwhile, six million six million went uh, went to the heavens. Explain the relevance of that to my point. Saying that we, as a Jews, the Jew state, have to have to keep the, their interests. That's what I'm saying. That Netanyahu has to keep the interests of the Jews. And the United States and Israel, because they're both democracies and believe in human rights and freedom, it is the obligation of their leaders, both leaders, to make sure that diplomatically they get along publicly incredibly well, so that the values that those countries, these are the only two countries on earth, as far as I know, that didn't evolve through historical vicissitudes, but were founded with a sense of mission and purpose 
to, believe, to, to promote freedom and democracy. The fact that the leaders of these two nations are, 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 are so immature that they simply can't get along and have these public fights. And, 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 and now America has a president-elect whose, whose supporters view Putin more positively than Obama means that we're entering into a, a very dangerous age where if we look at the world completely from that realpolitik perspective that you're describing, Alan, which is, well, we just have to do what's going to work for us you know, militarily, and say, eh, I think freedom I think and human rights and values are nice when you can afford them. You seem to be just wanting to throw out a real political situation here, which is very different than being in America. Right. We're in the Middle East. We're in a tough place. So for, right. So, so what I'm arguing... You can keep... Well, first of all, it doesn't really work to, on Skype if you talk at the same time. But if, um, but if you are arguing that the fact that I'm adding morality as nuance into the conversation means that I'm making a black and white choice and saying that since morality matters, then no other realpolitik should come into consideration, then you're putting words into my mouth because that's obviously not what I'm saying. I'm saying that to ignore values of morality in, in, in your political behavior is, is, is a betrayal of the mission statements of both the United States and Israel. Both leaders are failing in standing up for morality and values. And now you're going to have the United States working with a guy like Vladimir Putin. And the rise of a Putin without a clear moral distinction between Russia and Israel, or Russia and the United States, cannot be good for the world. We're entering into a 21st century of chaos. We're watching change all around us. And if we do this, saying, well, everyone just watch your interests, watch your interests, keep out of war, keep your people safe, watch your economy, and we don't enter into the 21st century saying, we have to make sure democracy succeeds. We have to make sure the human race becomes freer. 60% of the human race right now do not live in free countries. If you're saying none of that matters... As long as, as long as we're not getting missiles, you know, from no, Syria. No, I'm not saying that. But now okay. you're putting missiles. Exactly. So we're not being binary here. We're not saying either or, right? We're saying you no, can. You should. Definitely a, not. A leader should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. A leader should Correct. be able to say, "Look, I have national interests, but let's not put, let's not let's not forget principle here." Correct. But I think you. I just think you, you have to give some the Tanao some credit. That's all. Agreed. Yeah, we're not in a war. That's great. I like not being in a war. I like not running to my bomb shelter, you know, uh, five times a summer. I, I, I think the, the stability in Israel is, is, is wonderful. I think he's not paying sufficient attention to uh, economic issues. I think he's not paying at all enough attention, not only to the fact that it's getting harder to be successful as a middle class in Israel, but that poverty is a real problem. We have real domestic problems. And he's completely ignoring all foreign pro policy problems that Israel has while maintaining a – the man's absolutely devoted to maintaining the status quo. He's excellent wonderful. at it. Correct. And that's what it's gets him elected. For him. And that's well, what gets him elected. Yeah, and they're, because everyone's afraid of anyone else because the alternatives to the status quo terrify everyone. So, so, you're going Benji, so you're going to Benji's statement that there needs to be serious political change in this, uh, you know, government structure change of how we uh, elect our 
representatives. One hundred percent. Yeah, that's not going. Three point two five percent threshold to get in the Knesset is absolutely ridiculous. BB will always be beholden to the smaller parties. I don't think anybody in Israel thinks that the political system is is run well. No, but it's not that it's run well. It's that its foundation is is is, um, is fragile. Well, this is the problem is that the foundation won't be changed. Because the people that are in the Knesset would have to fire themselves. We are running... How would they do that? This is a problem that's not just an Israel problem. It's a Western world problem. We are... No, I think it is an Israel problem. 3.25% threshold? You don't have that in the States. You don't have that in Canada. You don't have that in most parliamentary democracies. We have too many small parties. Saying that it's a global problem in world democracies doesn't mean it isn't a problem for Israel also. It means that, that it's a different problem is what I'm saying. Each if you had a 20% threshold, you can have the blocks, would have the parties, you'd have a right wing, a left wing, a centrist, ultra-orthodox, an Arab party. You'd vote for one of those five parties and you get one or two of them together or maybe one actually wins. And then you have a prime minister that actually feels secure to do what he wants to do. Maybe not secure. Each, Eight years of insecurity. Each individual country is facing... I don't know why Alan's laughing, by the way. I think because he's watching my face on Skype as I try to say a sentence, and he likes watching me be frustrated because we all have that streak of sadism in us. Uh, Each individual country has the problem, but it's part of a bigger problem, which is that the, the largest organizing groups that we have in the 21st century are modern corporations and modern nation states, which are essentially 19th century, maybe 18th century, but... 18th, 19th century institutions dealing with 21st century problems, and we're watching the failure at a large scale. So that the problems that Israel is having are, are, are a particular example, I agree with you, of a broader problem. And, and, and something's going to have to give. We know that the end of this century won't look like the way the geopolitical situation will shift and change. Hopefully, Part of that change will be structural improvements to increase stability in the world of free countries. Because if, if not, uh, these things can take a bad, a really bad spiral, a really bad turn. So let's hope that, it's, it's, let, let's hope that our leaders are doing more than just protecting their own uh, domestic assets and other things that sound like that personally and political careers and start working on making systematic changes to make sure that the world becomes more stable and more safe and more free. So Go ahead. I just felt we, 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 we did what we actually really do in the teacher's lounge when we're just sitting around talking about this issue. Tangential arguments. We strayed from the, uh, um, from the original topic, though I don't believe we actually strayed away. No, I think I mean, we zoomed out. Really I think talking. we, I think we zoomed out to broader perspective yeah, on this topic. Exactly. So and I want to see if we can. By the way, the, from that, from that topic, would you say that this UN resolution is a step in making the world a better place? Uh, Not in the slightest. It's making the world a worse place. I, I don't. I don't, I don't it's know. It's bringing two sides apart Alan. from solving their issues. You've got no, a devil's advocate can, face. No, I don't. No, I'm just. No, my. I, I just don't think. It, I don't know if it's going to do all that much at all. Yeah, I don't way, think I mean, it's I think, really going to have any effect. 
I think it's a it's I think it's a blip in the you know in the end of the Obama administration, and it's it's an opportunity again. I think that Netanyahu is using it as an opportunity for a diplomatic. Alan, you say that because we're old and we've watched the freakouts for <laughs> you know every time when you know I, I, I when the Bush administration in 2007 called all the parties to Annapolis, Maryland, and said we're going to sign a peace deal within a year. I watched the Jewish community freak out. How dare they? Blah, 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 blah. And now it's, it's all but forgotten. And this is another one of those. Israel, Israel, in that when most people in Israel went, mm, you know, oh yeah, another one. Which it's I think gonna... it seems to be uh, that that uh, is a very uh, useful Israeli life skill. Except it keeps us in the status quo. Except it goes back right. to keeps us in the status quo. That and, and I, like every defense quo. mechanism, when By overused, way, it's dangerous and unhealthy. I want to like blame Trump when you blame Trump for his thing. The truth is, you can't blame it. Like you can't. We can blame the Tanil, but in the end of the day, where people are voting for him, the status quo works for him. If it didn't work for him, he wouldn't be in there. I think we. I, I think maybe we we need a bit of a shake up to to get things changed here. But how do we sort of? So how do we kind of sum up this whole? Track? I want to. My sum up is. Um, I, we haven't brought this up, but maybe this resolution is also the Obama administration's way of reminding that, A, he's still in office, B, he's, he's still the president. And when you talked about him trying to influence the Trump administration, um, is this actually going to make an impact after January 20th? Or are we all going to forget about this resolution once Trump comes into office? Because he's already going to, maybe he's going to come up with his plan on the first day. This is my vision for peace in the Middle East, and this resolution is ridiculous, doesn't represent the United States at all, um, and we're going to defund UNRWA, we're going to defund the Palestinian Authority, and we'll defund UN institutions if you actually relate to this resolution with any sort of relevance. I could see that happening. I don't know that anybody has any intention of making this resolution binding in any way, because leaders around the world also, leaders want status quo, and so they're not going to shake things up by making a more binding resolution anyway. So I, I don't see this having any real effect. It's just another bitter taste in the mouth for people who care about America and Israel. Uh, it, it's just another one of those opportunities to be uncomfortable. I personally would rather not do that with my hair on fire uh, about how... And, and I also think it's worthwhile pointing out that instead of just saying, well, everyone's anti-Semitic and out to get us, I, I do think it's important to look at things in a more nuanced way, even in a situation where we are being mistreated. Um, my wake-up call will be where I start, which is that we really, I think that we have to... We have to wake up to realize that we have not made our case in the international arena vis-a-vis the areas won in the 1967. I don't think anyone was listening. What? I don't know if it... We can talk about that we have an agency to have made our paradigm heard. I I don't know. Who's explaining it? Who's explaining it in a way that people can hear? Nobody. Show me somebody who's explaining it, and I'll blame the people not listening. But... Part of the reason I think we don't explain is because we start with that premise. Well, no one's going to listen to us anyway, so why bother explaining it? That, to me, and I and, 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 and I think is not in the spirit of Zionism. Zionism is we're going to take a desert and make it bloom. We're going to take a swap and turn it into a farm. And we're going to take international antipathy to apathy and turn it into support. We're going to do it. 
That's what Zionism and by the way, is. And, and, and by the way, and this goes back again to what we were saying about status quo, about there not being a real foreign minister, not being investment, because that's what a foreign minister should do. We should be making our case Absolutely. in the world. Absolutely. And they're not. And I would also argue that Zionism itself isn't about maintaining any status quo. It's about right. finding the next hill and climbing it. It's about not, always... not enjoying the plateau, but looking for the next achievement to, 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 put, to, to climb in our path to ultimate success. I always say in class, if I were to if I were to move down Zionist values to one word, it would be activism. Yeah, it would be activism. You have to do. You can never stop. You have to keep pushing. That is essentially what 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 we're about. So in this Hanukkah, we have to remember those right those lessons. The Hanukkah is about being active, about being changing the future, not accepting the status quo. And last but not least, Hanukkah is the only holiday to actually occur in the land of Israel. So what? Not a more Zionist moment in our history. There you go. Nice. There you go. Mike, last, thought on Hanukkah. last thought on Hanukkah, Mike? Just one thought, not in, to the next podcast. Well, I do want to do a podcast episode mm-hmm. on Hanukkah, but but I would I would say that the that the underlying idea of Hanukkah is optimism. That when it seems like there isn't going to be enough light to make it through the cold, dark winter that the days actually just started getting longer and the light is coming. So that that optimism is what powers the activism. In other words, if you think I'm struggling in vain, it's going to be a very different effort than struggling but knowing that even if I don't see the fruits of my labor, my children and my grandchildren will. Because that's also a big part of, of Zionism, I think, and a big part of Hanukkah. Yehuda Maccabee didn't live to see a free Judea. But without Yehuda Hamakabi, there wouldn't have been a free Judea. So it, it, it's an opportunity to remind us to redouble our efforts to bring more light into the world, more light than heat, and, and, and make the world a better place through our mission, which is building uh, a, a free and successful state of Israel. Hanukkah Sameach. Hanukkah Sameach, everybody. Uh, as always, we try to stay in touch with you with this podcast, so please stay in touch with us. We're getting your emails, we're getting your requests, and those will be uh, future episodes coming up. If we didn't respond to you specifically, uh, please don't take that as a sign that we're not paying attention. We absolutely are. Don't forget to check us out on our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org. I really don't like our URL. What can you do? All right, thanks a lot. I actually think that was an excellent episode. A little long, but I hope you guys liked it too. Thanks. Bye.